Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Wordle, in case you have been living in a hippie commune in Bolivia for the last month, or you are Donald Trump and therefore banned from the internet, is a word puzzle game. Think mastermind meets Scrabble. There's one puzzle per day and it is the same for everyone. On the 1st of November 2021, 90 people attempted the day's Wordle. Last Sunday, more than 300,000 people had a go. But why? Why this? Why now? Why games at all? Why does an unassuming thing become hot while a planned product with millions behind it in marketing flop? My guest today can ponder all those questions with me. He's a philosophy professor at the University of Utah, specializing in the fascinating area of games as mirrors of our values, lately a Twitter sensation, and the author of Games Agency as Art, the publisher of which, last I checked, was rushing to print more copies. I am delighted to welcome, at the apex of his notoriety, City Nguyen. Welcome to the bunker. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. This is actually not the apex of my notoriety. I I went viral... I went viral on Twitter for the stupidest possible joke about a year ago. I was literally writing about Twitter virality, and then I tweeted, <laughs> like, what was it? So my name is T, and my son is, like, four. And every morning I have some tea, and I said, like, mmm, this is good tea. And I found out that my son had been, like, thinking I was praising myself every morning. <laughs> and I tweeted this, and I was actually writing about the virality and the gamification of Twitter at that moment. And that tweet went viral and it was both totally stupid. And I could also feel it like infect every inch of my being as like, I became a being tuned to like the craving of going viral again. It was awful. It is just fascinating, isn't it? I I mean, I do, I do some work in social media myself and I've done a lot of research on what constitutes virality. And the short answer is basically nobody knows because if they, if they did, then they would design things to go viral. Um, T, first things first, can you describe the game Wordle very, very briefly? Right. So Wordle looks like a word guessing game. Every guess has to be five words. There's a word of the day that everyone shares. And this is really crucial. There's one puzzle every day. Everyone shares it. You have six guesses to get the five letter word. And it first looks like it's just going to be a pure guessing game. And you realize it gives you this intense feedback. And I think a lot of what's important about the game is the graphicality of the feedback. So you guess a word and then the game immediately gives you feedback. So any letter that's correct and in the correct place gets tagged with the green square and yeah. any letter that actually exists in the word, but isn't in the right place gets tagged with a yellow square. So the first thing that happens is you realize, Oh, I'm, I'm not just guessing words. I'm like using words to scan for like letter frequency, right? You're like, Oh, I should, I should put the vowels in really quickly to get feedback 
right, about what's likely. And then you're strategizing about like, oh, what's not just a guess, but what's a guess that might hit a sufficiently wide array, right? So you're lettuce. You, That's you're, right. So you're scanning the space. The theory you ventured is that actually that's at the at the core of why it's become so popular. The fact that it looks as if it's just chance, but actually when you begin to peel off layers, you find that you have bags of agency right. in it. And as a result, there there are proper debates and hot strategies, for right. instance, around uh, what the starting word should be. It's funny. So I write a lot about the relationship of games and agency. And a lot of people think game designers manipulate agency to get all these effects. And a lot of people want to think that what I'm saying is the more agency, the better. But that's not actually true. A lot of the most interesting games are really confined. Like I think a lot about Limit Hold'em Poker, where you have a random draw and you have so few moves possible. And yeah. what's fascinating is... First, that it looks totally random. But when you start playing it, you realize how much you can do. And it's interesting that you're trying to use these tiny limited tools, but you can get so much done. And you get a similar effect with Wordle, I think, right? You start and you're like, oh, it's just a random guessing game. And then you realize you can use the few abilities the game gives you to like do so much to scan the space. But it's this desperate fight to get these limited tools to do more than it first seems like they look they can do. The other area in which you focus is the design of the game, specifically the look of the shareable result. And, and that's quite important. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is what I think is really unique about uh, Wordle. Wordle looks, like you mentioned, like a lot of other, the, the mechanic itself looks a lot like Mastermind and a lot of other word games. And this experience of realizing that you have more agents than you thought is really familiar. The neat thing about Wordle is that you get this feedback graph, but there's a shareable version that removes the letters, but just shows you a nice little like five by six stack of what it looks like. And so someone's like daily Wordle graph might look like, oh, you got just one yellow. And then the next line, you see a a green and a yellow. The next line, you see a green and a different yellow, and you see them. And and then suddenly, they get it. So the interesting thing for me is everything else I've said about Wordle looks like a lot of other games I know. And as, and this is this is funny for me. As an official professional scholar of games, <laughs> right? This is, this is a really weird thing for me to say at this point in my life. As an official scholar of games, the thing that makes Wordle really unique and stand out is the shareability. Because I don't know of another game where your progress through the whole game can be so sharply synoptically expressed in like a single quick image. It is in fact that which drew me into the game. I was yeah. seeing people sharing these square stacks and I thought, what are these things all these people are sharing? Right. And so I asked a friend of mine, what is this thing? And she went, oh, you're going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> now, life is complicated enough <laughs> for all of us okay i might even suggest that with a pandemic new variants you know guidance that changes daily labyrinthine travel restrictions we are playing life at a pretty hard setting right now why would anyone create additional challenges for right. themselves right. no this is a lot i think a lot of the times, I, you know, I've spent the last bunch of years of my life working on games. And the, one of the natural puzzles is 
you spend all your day working and then you go home and then you do more work, right? <laughs> you, you learn comp, you struggle in a bureaucracy and then you go and learn more rules and learn more bizarre, complicated <laughs> rule systems to navigate. Isn't that weird and kind of stupid? Games are a kind of activity and they're a kind of struggle, but they're a struggle that we shape for our own pleasure and joy and satisfaction and interest, right? So the philosopher John Dewey said that every art form was a crystallization of something natural that happens, you know, in the world. Like paintings are the crystallization of seeing and fiction is the crystallization of just telling people what happened in your day. And I think Mm. games are the crystallization of practical activity, of instrumental struggles, of trying to get shit done. And one of the things that I think happens is that a lot of the struggles we have in life are horrible because they're not designed to feel good, right? Like either they're completely overwhelming, like the pandemic, or they're completely monotonous and boring, like for me, grading 150 papers. One of the things you find out if you do philosophy of art in our history is that every time a new art form comes out, people want to try to think about it and make it like older art forms. People try to take photography and they try to make it like painting by like yeah, yeah. blurring it, right? They, it takes a while to come to terms with the capacities of the new medium. And so this looked to me like a lot of people finding games and rushing them and trying to stuff them into like the movie or the fiction box. Yeah, and yeah, what's yeah. special about games for me is that the game designer, I mean, they tell a story and they create a world, but they also design a self for you. They tell you who to be, right? They tell you your abilities and they tell you your goals. So the great German game designer, Reiner Knizia, he has this lecture and in it, he has a line that just blew my mind where he says, the most important game design tool in my toolbox is the point system and the victory conditions because that tells the players what to care about. And if you're a philosopher who works in like moral motivation, this blows your mind. You're like, of course, that's so right. <laughs> game designers do tell you what to care about. And you do open the rules and you're like, okay, I've been told to care about collecting sheep, right? I want to collect sheep now. <laughs> so right. in many ways, they have solved the moral ambiguities right. for you. So it basically it has the structure that real life lacks. Yes, that's, that's exactly the appeal of games. That's the most important thing about games for me. Like, one of the greatest pleasures is that ordinary life is incredibly fuzzy. And the game designer has designed a crystalline agency for you with clear, specified abilities and clear goals. And in this background of this nauseating, overwhelming life where we don't know exactly what to care about or how well we've succeeded, games give you this moment of, like, existential peace. You have said a lot about the fact there is only one puzzle a day and that it's the same for everyone. How does that universality and that scarcity fit inside your your model of game as art? A really common thought on Twitter these days is that Wordle feels kind because they only give you a puzzle a day instead of like getting you to binge infinitely. (laughs) And I I just think like, oh my God, this is the world we're in now where the fact that someone is not aggressively trying to addict you now reads as kindness. Well, it kind of is, I guess. (laughs) The real effect of the one puzzle a day is the social effect. The big norm of the world community is don't spoil today's puzzle. But I think a few days ago, the puzzle was proxy. And of course, you know that 
the word like proxy has two very low instance words like X and Y. And yeah. so you can actually see people like flailing about until they figure out there's an X and Y or getting lucky. And once you know the word and once you felt that struggle, you can, it's so much easier to read. So one, one way to put it is games specify agency. And part of the way they specify agency is by specifying the goal. And Wordle just doesn't specify a general goal, like figure out the word. Each day has a very specific shared goal, which makes our agency more similar, puts them in a more similar space. And so that makes it so much more possible to have these experiences of near telepathy because I've been in the same agential box as you. And so now I can like imagine what it was like to be you. Let's take a slightly more of a deep dive and leave Wordle behind for a moment. So uh, in a recent lecture for the uh, Royal Institute of Philosophy, you explored in a way the flip side of what we've been talking about, that because precisely we crave simplicity and clarity and structure, because they are pleasurable, whereas com- complexity and nuance and are, they're hard and they're unrewarding, basically. We seek to simplify our own morality, especially in electronic media. And this leads to polarization and silos and echo chambers and ultimately a, a sort of division. Is there a way somehow to import other more useful understandings from gaming to social media to ease that? You know, the, the notion that we are all trying to solve the same puzzles in different ways, the, the notion that we are not all as experienced at everything or playing at the same difficulty setting, stuff like that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So in general, I'm very interested in the possibility of artificially pleasurable simplicity, right? I think like the same way that certain industrial manufacturers have figured out to load certain foods with like sugar and salt, they figured out how to load, people have figured out how to load belief systems Really pleasurable simplicity. Yeah. Simpli- like, I think this is like conspiracy theories are like the addictive chip of like mental, right? <laughs> whatever. I mean, I, I speak as a as someone that can't keep any size bag of chips in the house and is never allowed to buy like the jumbo size. Anyway, the pleasure of games is often in the clarity and simplicity of action. You know what the goal is and you know how your abilities fit. And there's a way that can help and there's a way that can really hurt your life outside of games. So uh, let, let me give you the ideal image and the, the horrifying image. So the ideal yeah. image for me is that the one relationship you can have with games is you can slip into and out of hyper-clarified value system. One of the things we think makes us more free is libraries, right? Because libraries contain ideas. They give us, a re- like books contain all kinds of ideas. And one of my thoughts is that every game encodes a form of agency. Like chess gives you the experience of being like, the agency of being a tight geometrical look ahead and, you know, hmm. word will give, right. So games actually constitute a library of agencies where you can tour different agencies and give yourself more exposure to different ways of like mental and practical being. If that's right, then there is a way that could expand you. And that's like you tour a wide variety of simplified value systems and you get a feel for them and you also step back from each of them and you reflect on them. The optimistic view is like, here's the thing you do in games. You play a game, you accept this tight value system and then you step back and you ask yourself from outside that value system, was that worth it? Was that fun? Was that beautiful? And that's a reflective practice of stepping back from a tight value system. And you might think that 
could help someone build, I don't know, the mental muscle to be in a, I don't know, journalism or podcasting job and be constantly exposed to the value system of page views, clicks and followers. And then sometimes step back and be like, is that a good value to have (laughs) the flip side? So my, my big worry about games is not about violence, but my big worry is that people will export the expectation that values will be simple and quantified and that outside of the game that will lead people to searching out and readily adopting institutions that offer clear, simplified value systems. The motto at the end of the book is, uh, I'm not worried about games making serial killers. I'm worried about games making Wall Street bankers. Yeah. What we do with games is we take on an external value system. And that's good if that value system is treated as like a potential candidate that someone's communicated to us for us to ponder for a while and then reflect on. I think it's bad if we just take it up, period, and swallow it. And we just like accept a pre-established value system as our own and just ingest it. And I'm really worried this is going on with Fitbit and Twitter likes and money. Yes, because in in many ways it it conditions you uh, both in your reactions and in what to expect uh, from others that there is nothing in between the thumbs up or the little love heart and the frowny face. You know, that, that everything you say is either approved of and adored or makes someone really angry. You wrote your book, Games Agency as Art, despite from what I read, not having anyone who really wanted to publish it <laughs> or or thinking that anyone would actually read it. It was a personal project. You know, it was a it was a love affair. And Josh Wardle, who created Wordle, did it really as a love letter to his partner, then extended it to his family to compensate for periods without contact because of the pandemic. And everywhere you look, you see stories like these, you know, eBay was created by someone so their other half could swap collectible pest dispensers, I think. Facebook created from motives perhaps a little baser. But are all these stories creating an irrefutable argument for something like universal basic income? It just seems <laughs> to me that we are, when we are empowered to do the things we really love, is when we unlock truly new stuff. I did write this book when I gave up on being a philosopher and just wanted to do something that I actually cared about. I think universal basic income frees us from one clear incentive system, but there are others. One of the interesting things for me is how much exposure to these clear, simple incentive systems can get into us. My life before writing this book was... I now realize very aligned to clear incentive systems inside my profession, uh, like Mm -hmm. academic philosophy. And those weren't actually money. Those were, I mean, I had a job already. Those were things like, I mean, it's going to sound stupid to anyone else outside the world, but like citation rates. There's a single (laughs) list that people vote on about the status ranking of philosophy journals. And everyone's like super desperate to, to publish in the highest ranked journal. And none of this stuff is associated with money. Right? It's just a ranking system that our profession. It's likes, is what it is. Right. So, for a lot of us, you need some of that to get your job. But once you have your job, the struggle to rise up that is just a struggle to go up on some ranking system. And when you do that, what my experience of doing that was I had to write about stuff that I 
didn't care about and bored me and made me wildly depressed. And like, this is the thing that's so interesting to me. This is the stuff I'm trying to research now. Like the existence of these clear ranking systems, no matter how accurate they are or something, they just get under our skin. I mean, the point here is that like, we shouldn't quantify. It's that even when we know the quantifications are crap. Like everyone in the educational system knows that the U.S. News and World Report's ranking of law schools is crap. But people are just sucked into it anyway. By the way, there's an incredible yeah, yeah. book about this I should recommend. Uh, Wendy Esplin and Michael Souter's Engines of Anxiety. So if you're interested in this stuff, you should read uh, that book, which is a sociolo- sociologist who specialized in quantification, unlocking what quantification does in higher education. And it's horrifying. I did an interview with, with a with a merchant banker recently, and I was trying to probe, you know, well, I mean, once you have just shed loads of money, what right. does it matter what your next bonus will be and what your next salary will be? And And the thing that emerged was that it is their ranking system. Yep. You know, to get less bonus than last year means you have somehow failed. To get less bonus than a colleague means that you have somehow failed. So it gets right. to a point where it's not even about the money. It's about the amount as a sort of framework of reward. So how do we reframe those right. reward structures so we don't end up, you know, I was reading Brian Class's book recently about you know, why we attract so many psychotic people into leadership positions and then promote them loads. How do we reframe the reward structure so that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a constant race against each other so that it brings us together in a, in a weird way, like Wordle does by allowing you to sort of share this universal one puzzle a day um, result without spoiling it for others. How do we reframe um, the structure within which we op- we operate to let each other know that we are all trying to solve the same puzzle? I think you're literally asking the most important and difficult question of the modern era. Like, how do you resist external incentive structures that have evolved that are hostile to you, but just still trying to get inside you? I mean, honestly, the the, the real answer is, Ask me again in 30 years is what I'm working on, but I have, a, I have a really, here's the hopeful answer. The more I read in this space, the more I think we do have a long history of practices and tendencies that are resistant to hyper clear, simplified incentive structures. And we call those things art and play, right? Like, yeah. One of the things I'm trying to write about right now is the fact that there are all these norms and practices in the art world that say things like you're supposed to think for yourself. You're not supposed to adopt value systems from other people. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to look for rules of what make good art. You're supposed to feel it out for yourself. When you read the philosophy of play and the anthropology of play, there's this constant thread that what play is, is one of the puzzles of play is a lot of the times play is rule bound, but there are these voluntary rules that you step into and step back from. The philosopher, the feminist philosopher Maria Lagones, who has this beautiful paper on playfulness and world traveling, says that what it is to play, in a sense, is to be in a place creatively, to not hold a rule as like dogmatic, but as to see it as something like open for negotiation. 
to reframe what I was saying before is you could play games in a really dogmatic way and think, here's the value system of the game. This is what I have to do. I need to win. That's it. Or you can yeah. play a game playfully and step back from it and like go lightly into it and wear the goal lightly and step back and not care about whether you won and care about, you know, whether it made people's lives richer. So I think like there are these subtle incentive and dogmatic resistant tendencies we have. But one of the things you can see is that the world is, st- I mean, I'm involved in a constant fight to save the humanities from all of the humanities being defunded in favor of yeah, the business yeah, yeah. school everywhere, and the STEM programs. Everywhere. Right. And I think what that reads to me is like the humanities don't give value that easily fits into the incentive structure. And so the, the world is oriented towards clear incentive structures, want to squash that stuff out. But the real value they have is that they're resistant to the world of hyper clear, monolithic, simplified value structures. See, Ting Yuan, thank you so much for your time and for your brilliant mind. It's a date in 30 years' time. You can come back <laughs> and answer that question, okay? Okay. Great to be on. Thank you very so much. Remember, there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday mornings. You start the week supplement on Mondays, your culture supplement on Saturday, and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. My first computer was a Spectrum ZX, and the first game I played on it was the text adventure version of The Hobbit. Hours upon hours of examine rock. It's a rock. Pick up rock. The rock is too far. Eat rock. I don't think that would help. Pry rock. Take rock. Bury rock. I spent the next decade unwinding with Dungeons of Moria, an arcade game the design of which consisted entirely of letters. Thirty years later, I still derive enormous pleasure out of text on a screen and have made it my living. And maybe that is the point that games access a part of ourselves that, as adults, we are compelled to keep locked away for most of the time. And maybe it is that part of us that sparkles the brightest. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying, over and out. Kick rock. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.